Let me just open this up with a word of prayer, and we'll start this thing. Dear Blessed Father, Lord, we just thank you for you are good, you are faithful, you are holy and righteous, and Lord, we just humble ourselves before you that we would draw near into your presence that we would enter your gates with thanksgiving and your courts with praise, Lord. Uh, draw our hearts to you. Fill us with the Holy Spirit of God, that we would be conformed more into the image of Jesus Christ, Father, for we want to be your hands and your feet. So clothe us in your righteousness. May we open up our hearts and minds to all that you have to teach us. We love you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your glorious name we ask these things. Amen. Okay, so there was a little bit of homework, right? Who took two or three things that they learned and went and spoke with somebody about that? Just like the college students. It's just like, yeah, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not signing up for that. All right. The easy part was to watch the little videos. Did anybody watch the little videos? Okay, slightly more. What'd you think of those? Those that watched the video? <laughs> Helpful? Okay. Now you need to go put that into practice. And those that didn't watch it, then you'll have four videos to watch this week. Okay. Four. Four. All right. So we're good. Um, we'll go ahead and get started. Today is we're looking at study the scriptures well. Because the reality of it is, um, if we can't interpret the scriptures properly, then that means we can't study the scriptures well, which means we cannot live the scriptures to the glory of God's name. And you can learn all of the apologetics that you want. But if we don't get this piece right, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because we can turn around and we can use apologetics and we, we can use worldviews and we can deconstruct people's worldviews and we can bring them into a point of a crisis of belief. But if we don't know enough of Scripture to insert the gospel and the truth of what God's Word says, man, that is an egregious sin to sit there. Because literally what you're doing is you're destroying somebody the very any hope that they have. And... So again, it's not just a matter of deconstructing somebody's worldview or moving them to a point that's at least whatever it is they believe. We've got to be able to talk about the truth of what God's Word says. And if we can't study the Scriptures well, we are not going to be able to speak rightly to God's Word. And so that's what this piece is here. It's a study the Scriptures well. Um, there's a lot of different Bible study methods that are out there. And if you've got one and it's working for you, amen, stay with that. If that's an area where you struggle, hang in there. What we're going to talk about tonight, most of it just aligns with the inductive study Bible method is how that works. And, that's, and you'll learn more as we kind of go through that process. But again, if you've got one, you're good. Stay with it. If you don't and you kind of struggle with that process, again, I think tonight will help you. And then we'll end up talking the, the night on doctrine and the importance of doctrine. So we'll go ahead and get started. All right. One of the most misinterpreted verses that's out there is this. Right? It's Matthew 18, 20. It says, where two or three have gathered in my name, there I will also be. And where you hear this a lot, it is, hey, wherever two or three people are at, Jesus is there. Which it is a true statement, but what if there's only one person? Is Jesus there? Well, he is. Man, if you're a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. Jesus is with you if it's just you. If it's just you, Jesus is there. So what is this verse saying? Man, it's, again, this is where we talked about, I talked about for the believers that Jesus is also there. But when you read it in context, well, I really need to have my glasses on. Hang on, sorry about that. Uh, but when you read it in context, right, which would be 15 through 19, it tells us, it says, we learn Matthew, he's talking about church discipline. 
That's the context of this passage. It's church discipline. Right? And so often what happens is, is we, we read the Bible passage, or the Sunday school teacher, the life group teacher reads the Bible passage, and they look at it and says, well, what does that mean to you? That's not interpreting Scripture. Right? You've jumped over two steps of interpreting Scripture, and you've jumped into application. That's what takes place when it says, you read it, what's that mean to you? Man, that's the last step in the process. It's important that we interpret the Scripture well and that we understand it well so we can apply it well. Another verse, Philippians 4.13. It says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? Man, Christ is going to give me the strength to do whatever I set my mind to. I can even win a national championship and it's all going to be good. Right? That's where you see it. 4.13 on the eye black. And that's how we use it. Whatever I do, Jesus is going to give me the strength to do it. That's not the proper interpretation of the passage. All right? So when we read it in context, Paul's talking about suffering for the cause of Christ. We can endure all suffering because of Christ. And that changes it. But we want to use it for, oh, I got victory. That's not what that passage means. It's talking about suffering. And so it's important that we understand how to interpret Scripture properly, right? The weakening of the church begins with poor biblical study habits of the individual followers of Christ. And again, so often it's just, man, if, if, if your Bible intake consists of Brother Steve on Sunday morning and that's it, you are starving to death. You are starving to death. You're not going to live out the faith faithfully. Right? Sunday morning, yeah, we should learn. It's worship and it's ministry and it's service. Man, you should be feeding yourself every single day. And the goal of a follower of Christ is you become a self-feeder. That you become a self-feeder. But the church is starving to death because we're not feeding ourselves. We're just Most of the time, we're eating off of somebody else's plate. We're eating off of somebody else's plate. So, poor interpretation and study habits, they're going to lead to an improper view of Jesus. They will lead to an improper view of Jesus. All right? Talked a little bit about this last week with uh, Alyssa Childers' book, uh, Progressive Christianity, and, and this is a modern progressive view of Jesus. All right? This. This is how we see Jesus within this modern progressive view. Uh, he avoids negativity. In other words, Jesus is not going to talk about sin. Jesus is not going to talk about judgment. Neither should you. He gives positive reinforcement. He encourages you to love yourself and be happy, right? Self-care, it's so important. Happiness is the highest goal. I mean, that's our greatest. Man, if I can live through this day and happy, man, it's been a good day. It's been a good day, right? It preaches only love. They're more concerned with moralism than salvation. If you can just live a good moral life, you're doing good. You're doing what Christ has called you to do. And then he hates to offend others. Jesus would never offend anybody. And that's what you get with this modern view of Jesus, this progressive view of Christ this is it. And again, you know, it sounds kind of nice. And let me be honest, I wish it was kind of that way. The only issue is Scripture doesn't teach us that. 
Scripture does not teach us this view of Jesus. So a biblical view of Jesus, right? He warns of judgment in hell. He gives salvation, joy, and hope. He demands self-denial. He preaches the holiness of God. And he offends the world with truth. With truth. He offends the world with truth. Look, we obviously you know this. We live in a world, if you're speaking truth, people are going to be offended. They're going to be offended. But man, I would rather offend somebody with the truth than make them feel good about a lie. I would rather offend them. And again, we shouldn't be obnoxious. We shouldn't be belligerent about it. We should do it with love and kindness, gentleness, and respect. But we must share the truth. We cannot live by lies. We cannot live by lies. Um, is, is tonight the first night for some people? I'm sorry. The sheet of paper, what's in your hands is what's on the PowerPoint. If it's not on the PowerPoint and I'm talking about it, then I'm just I'm winging it at that point in time, which happens a lot. You'll notice as we get away from that. So anyway, I apologize. And that was just a tweet that I got from Dustin Benj. Um, so anyway, we must fight against the idea of making Christianity easy and user-friendly. We must fight against the idea that we are making Christianity easy to do and user-friendly. Man, living the Christian life is anything but easy. Man, God calls us to holiness. He calls believers in Christ, right? We still have that sinful nature that we have to crucify it on the cross every single day. And if we don't, bless you, it is going to take over. The Christian life is not easy. It's not meant to be easy. But right, we spend all of our time trying to get people to come to church that don't want to be here. Right? Man, invest in those that want to be here. We still need to go out and share and live the gospel. But, I mean, I was a terrible life group teacher. I'll just tell you. I mean, anybody that had me, I was terrible. Because if people weren't showing up to my class, I'd call them once or twice, and then I'd talk with their parents, and then it's like, okay, they just don't want to be here. I'll invest in those that want to be here. I probably should, that was just recorded. We need to cut. Anyway, that's, that's good. But like I said, we spend so much effort trying to get people here that don't want to be here. Invest in those. Uh, I guess I heard this from actually Donna Gaines. I'd heard her say this. There was an African pastor that was here. Uh, he was from Africa. And he said, I only work in fields that produce crops. I only work in fields that produce crops. Right? And so when I disciple people and we go through this process, if they're not keeping, and you're going to think this is just really mean, but if they're not keeping up with the work, we'll talk about it. We'll see what's going on. But eventually it's going to be, you know, uh, this is probably not your time to go through this process. This is probably not your time. It might be better that you just step out on this one. Because again, they're wasting their time. They're wasting the group's time. When you're serious about your walk with Christ and you want to go through this, let me know. Let me know. We must not make Christianity easy and user-friendly. Any questions? Have I just offended anybody thoroughly? Okay. 
What? We don't need to attract more people to the church. We need to be the church to more people. We need to be the church to more people. So interpretation methods or hermeneutics is kind of the, uh, the theological word uh, that goes with that. All right? And the first thing is that there's an allegorical method. And that's called, it's reader-centered. It's all about the reader, not the author who wrote the text. So it's reader-centered. Right? It looks for deeper spiritual meanings in the text. In other words, meanings that aren't there. The meaning of the text lies with the one reading the text, not the author of the text. And so I may be reading a book that you wrote, and I'm like, well, this is what this book means to me. Well, that's not what it means at all. Right? And I was just sitting there thinking about it, right? You know, I get a text message from my wife, and she sits there and says, you are the rudest, most arrogant, self-righteous person I've ever known, and if you don't get counseling, we're done. And my friend says, well, what does she say? She goes, we're good. It's all good. I'm reading into her text. No, she's the one that wrote the text. She's the one that gets to say what the, she didn't say that. She didn't text that to me. <laughs> she would never text that. She'd say it to my face, okay? Right? She'd say it to my face. But anyway, so, but she didn't do that either. And so, but the reader gets to interpret what the text means, not the author. And that's, kind of, again, that's an allegorical method of interpreting text. It asks the question, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? Next, we have a literal, grammatical, historical method. And it'll be referred to as just LGH from here on out, right? It seeks to understand the author's meaning of the text. The author wrote the letter. The author gets to say what the meaning is. Right? And it's kind of funny if you look at postmodern art and people, they'll go and look at this art and, and you don't really know what it means and you're not even sure that it's art and they're saying, and they come up with all these outlandish meanings. And you're like, well, what did the author mean? And that just kills the conversation. It's just like songs that happen today. You know, what's uh, Corey Asbury, Reckless Love, right? And people's like, well, God's love's not reckless. I'm like, well, what does the word reckless mean? Right? We have to go to the author to find out what did they mean when they wrote those, those lyrics. But we throw our interpretation on it. We can't do that. We can't do that. Not with the literal method. Normally, when one studies history, they should interpret it through the lens of those who lived during the time they wrote it. During the time they wrote it. So it's the lens of the culture 2,000 years ago is how we need to interpret the passage, right? Some people want to interpret history through a 21st century lens, right? C.S. Lewis called that chronological snobbery. And so, right, we're taking our culture and we're laying it on a culture from 2,000 years ago and we're just judging them left and right. And it's like, you can't do that. What was the culture at the time? We interpret through that lens, we must not commit chronological snobbery like we've got it all figured out. So biblical principles or principles of biblical interpretation. And so there's, there's like seven steps that you want to look at, and that's the genre or the kind of literature. All right? You end up with historical, narrative, poetry, prophecy, gospel, epistle. 
right? If you're reading through the Psalms, right, it's poetry, right? And when it says God wishes to gather you as a, as a hen to gather her chicks. So, I mean, that doesn't mean God has wings, right? We don't take a literal method to that and say, well, God's a chicken. No, that's not it. Or, right, or the earth is held up by the pillars of God's hand. It's not literal physical pillars that are holding up the earth. And so poetry is going to carry a lot of symbolism. It's going to carry a lot of metaphors in it, and we must read it that way. And the same thing when we're dealing with prophecy. You know, somebody says, oh, yeah, I've got the prophecies figured out. No, you don't. No, you don't. Not unless it's already happened, and then we even still struggle with that. And so it's important that we know what kind of genre or the kind of literature that it is that we're reading, right? Context is king. Context is king. I mean, if you can just get one of these seven right, this is the one. This is the one that you must get right, is the context. Right? We saw that in Matthew uh, 28 where we were looking at that. And there's another practice at the end in Matthew 7, 1, talking about judgment. But we've got to get the context. And never read a verse. Read blocks of verses to gain context. Read blocks of verses. And sometimes you have to read the whole chapter but it's important. It's important that we get the context down. Um, Look for the plain and the obvious meaning of the text. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Right? And so, man, if your theology leans towards, towards the reform side, oh, well, that doesn't mean God loves everybody. He loves all of the elect. I'm like, stop it. Stop it. You know better than that. The plain, obvious meaning of the text is that's how we take it. That's how we take it. And if it's a difficult passage, then we interpret the difficult passages by the easier passages that we do understand. Okay? Plain, obvious meaning. Next, we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. That is the best commentary on the Bible. So if there's a passage, again, it's got a hard meaning, and it's like, man, I'm not sure what that means. Well, go read other passages that deal with the same topic, and we'll let Scripture interpret Scripture. Right? What do the other Bible passages say? Right? The best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. The Bible is the best commentary on itself. Cross-references. I use these a lot. And again, we've got something coming up. It won't be on your sheet, but uh, we'll come back and look at the cross-references. And then who is the author writing to? Is he writing to a Jewish audience? Is he writing to a Gentile audience? Right? So when we go through and we read, we read Matthew, man, he's got all of these Old Testament scriptures that he's quoting because he's talking to a Jewish audience. They would understand, oh, we know those passages. I understand where you're going. Right? When Paul walked into Athens, he's not quoting Scripture. He's talking about biblical ideas, but he's not quoting Scripture. He uses biblical ideas. He uses logic. He uses reason. And throughout those passages, it says, let us reason together. Paul says that nine or ten times from Acts 9 on through the end of Acts. Let us reason together. Because he's talking to a Greek audience. They don't know the Old Testament Scriptures, and nor do they care. Paul meets them where they're at, and then he brings them to the gospel. We clearly live 
in a post-Christian culture. We clearly live in a post-Christian culture. You can lead with Scripture, right? Because God's Word's powerful and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. But in a post-modern world, in a post-postmodern world, they're gonna say, I'm glad that works for you. I'm glad that works for you. We need to meet them where they're at. And then we bring them to the gospel. And again, a young lady was just talking to me today. She works with a, a lady where she's at, and she's, she's, she comes into work and she says, well, um, I'm now a male. And these are my pronouns, he and they. And she's like, what do I say? What do you think you should say? Because I don't know. That's why I'm asking you. And so I said, just ask her one question. How did you get to this point today? In other words, you're asking her, what's your story? Tell me how you were born a female, but now you think you're a male. How does that work? How did you get to this point today? And listen. And listen to what they have to say. And you pray, and you ask for further conversations, and you keep bringing them down that road where we can start bringing logic and reason. You know, there's a thing called chromosomes. And until you change your chromosomes, you are either male or you're female. Right? And then we can talk about, man, God created everybody with purpose and design. You are made in the image of God, and God's got a great plan for your life. He made you good just the way you are. And for us to say, oh, I'm just going to change my sex, I'm going to change my gender, God's not enough. God's plan's not enough. We've got to bring them and show them that God's plan is good, and He is faithful, and He's loving, and He's kind. And anything less than that is rebellion against Him. But you got to ask, what's your story? How did you get here? It's important, especially in the culture that we live in today. Let them share their story. Okay, questions? All right. Six is, uh, look, at, look at the word and the grammatical structure. I usually skip over this one. <laughs> that whole grammar stuff, this doesn't work for me. I know it's important, but I struggle with that. And then look for common themes or words in the passage. As you're reading through, and man, does it say joy? Again, if you're reading through Philippians, you're going to find joy, you're going to find rejoice, and you see it multiple, multiple times. If that word keeps showing up, right, Paul wants you to know something about joy. He wants you to know something about joy. Pay attention to that repetitive nature of a word or a phrase or even a sentence. This is the center column reference. Let me see what you can see. Yeah, okay, this works. Um, how it works, right? You've got the, the verse here. Well, that doesn't even show up on the screen, but you can see right there in, in verse 1, and it's got a small a, and then over in the center it says chapter 1, and then it's got that bold one. That's the verse. And then it's got the a by it. And so, so in the beginning was, and it's, everything there is going to reference. So you've got Genesis 1-1, you've got Colossians 1-17, you've got John 1-1, Revelations 1-4, and it keeps on going until you get down to the B. All of those verses after the A are, are in reference to in the beginning. Something about in the beginning. 
And we know what Genesis 1-1 says. It says, in the beginning, God created. And as you start to follow those verses through, what it ends up taking you to is over in Colossians. It says, all things were created by him and for him and through him. And apart from him, nothing was created that was created. Right? It's talking about Jesus. And so when you finish that thread or that idea, we find out not only is Jesus God, but he was in the beginning and he was the creator. God created through Jesus Christ. And so we know that by tracing those cross-references through Scripture from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. And it gives us a picture for that phrase, in the beginning was. And so it breaks down. And trust me, you can one verse, and you can spend 30 minutes on one verse cross-referencing or longer. Man, it's immensely helpful to me. Hopefully it would be to you, but that's how the center column referencing works. And this is just what the whole page is, and it looks like it. You can get side column references. You can get into column references. There's a lot of different ones out there. Um, if you got questions, you could, we sell this stuff in the bookstore, right? <laughs> Come by. So when we read the Bible, we need to take a God-centered perspective when reading the Bible. Right? It's God's story. It's not our story. It's a story about God and how we can know Him. And again, you know, I talk with the students and we, you know, we read the story, you know, David and Goliath. We all love the story. And normally what happens is, is when we read the story, we put ourselves in David's position. Oh yeah. Taking them down. Right? And so we see ourselves as David. I'm not David, and you're not David. You know who we are? We're Goliath and the Philistines. That's who we are in the story. God is the hero of the story, not us. And it's important that we understand that. And in the narcissistic culture that we live in, we all want to be the heroes. We're not. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the hero. Okay? So what does it mean? When reading, studying the Bible, we need to ask these three questions. What does it say? Question number one. And what you're looking for is observation. You're not looking to interpret the passage yet. You're just, what is the author talking about? And that's where you get the who, what, when, where, why. All right? And this comes from the inductive study Bible method. Um, that's what we're looking for. What does it say? Next is, what does it mean? Again, that's through the literal, grammatical, historical approach. There's only one interpretation to the passage. There's only one. And whose interpretation is it? It's God's, ultimately, because he wrote it all. But he's writing through an author. There's only one. There's not multiple interpretations to a passage. You can have multiple, but there's only going to be one right one and then everything else is going to be wrong. Next is, what am I going to do with this application? Right? This is that question, what does that mean to you? Now we finally get there, and we say, right? So there's one interpretation, but there can be many applications. The application for me can be different than the application for you. And you could have 10 different applications. Wherever you're at in that life, it can be different. But what cannot be different is the interpretation of the passage. It cannot be different. The author holds the meaning to that passage. So, observation. Right? Look at what is said. 
Look for terms and phrases. Structure, grammar, sentence, structure, paragraphs, etc. Repetition of words. If then statements, if my people who are called by my name, then I will hear. Comparisons and contrasts, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Man, Paul's writings are just filled with contrast. I mean, you can go through some of my older Bibles and I've just got arrows going back and forth. Up, oh, this is contrasting with this. It's important for me to know that because Paul wrote it and I want to understand what is the contrast because he's driving a point with that. What does the passage teach about God? Right? Another question that we need to ask. And what does the passage teach about us, about humanity, about you? We need to ask those questions as we're studying through the Scriptures. You know what? Never mind. I'm just moving on. I, just, I hit these pauses and I'm just debating, do I say this or not? But I'm just I'm going to move on. Interpretation. <laughs> I'd have to turn the mic off if I said that. Uh, context. You can answer 75% of the questions by gaining the context. You can get your interpretation 75% of the time by gaining the proper context. And that clears up so much. And again, we don't, read, we don't read verses. We read passages. We read blocks of Scripture to gain the context. Cross-references. Again, we talked about this. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Culture, we seek to understand through the writer's cultural context. You know, when we, Ben's going to like me for this, right? Ben Taylor, the missions pastor, right? Because when you go out onto the mission field, right, you learn the culture. And so if I'm taking a team down to Honduras, man, we spend time learning the culture of Honduras. Because that's where, how we want to relate to them. We want to be able to connect with them through their culture that we do that. Again, I can go down there and talk about and use examples they know nothing about. That's just not very effective. So we need to learn the culture so we can best communicate the truth of God's Word to them. So the conclusion, and that's what does the passage mean? What does the passage mean? All that's an interpretation. And then consultation. Commentaries, Bible dictionaries, Please use these last. The tendency is if you have a study Bible and you're reading a passage and you're like, eh, that one's a little sticky, you want to drop down to the bottom of the page and see what it says. Resist doing that. Resist doing that. Man, spend the time, do the hard work to study the passage, to learn the passage, to figure out the context and all of those other things. And then when you're done then go check all of those other sources. Again, when I'm preparing the lesson, man, I'll prepare the lesson for three or four days. Friday, I go and look at the commentaries. And man, if, if I'm kind of lining up with what other people are saying, yeah. And sometimes it's like, wow, I wasn't even close. Got to start over. Got to start over. Use those last. They're highly beneficial but they can become a crutch, and then you never really learn to study the Scriptures. You never learn to study the Scriptures. Become self-feeders. I talked about that. Psalms 119.18. Open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law. 
Before you read the Word of God, pray the, to the God of the Word. Right? You've heard Steve say that a few times. I think Dr. Rogers said it a bunch. Right? We must become self-feeders. Until we learn to feed ourselves, we will never grow spiritually as God intends. Man, we're just stagnant in our lives because we are not self-feeders. Now, one of the challenges is if you're reading through the Bible in a year, how many, how many are doing that right now? Okay, so we, we, we got a few that are reading through the Bible in a year. Man, you're not going to be able to do this <laughs> in 15 minutes reading three chapters. Just not. I'll get there and I'll start reading and I find one verse. Oh, I wonder what that means. 30 minutes later, I hadn't even read one chapter, much less three chapters. So if you're reading through the Bible in a year, it's a great thing. Set aside some time to, if there's one thing that piqued your curiosity, write it down and then spend some time studying after you finish your reading. I encourage you to do that. Like I said, you're not going to do it doing three chapters a day. You cannot train for a marathon by watching others run. You've got to get in the game. You have to study it for yourself. If you want to live it, if you want to learn it, if you want to grow in Christ-likeness, you have to become a self-feeder. Questions? All right. Think exegesis, not eisegesis. Again, theological terms, exegesis, it's getting the meaning out of the text. We get the meaning out of the text, exegesis. Eisegesis is just reading meaning into the text. It's what you say the text means, right? And that becomes that allegorical method for interpreting Scripture. We want to do exegesis, not eisegesis. Context is king. Context is king. And then a little bit about descriptive and prescriptive when we, when we, when we read through the Scriptures, right? Descriptive passages talk about events that have taken place. Most of the Bible is historical, so most of it is descriptive in nature. And so when we look at passages on slavery or polygamy, this describes how things were. It doesn't mean that God condones sex actions. Right? And again, I don't know how many times, oh, God condones, condones polygamy. Really, why do you say that? Well, it's just all throughout the Old Testament. They're just describing how it was. They're not saying that's how it ought to be, right? That's descriptive. Prescriptive, it prescribes how we ought to live, how we ought to think, how we ought to make decisions. Examples, the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mounts, the Sermon on the Mount, and the Great Commission are just a few. Those are prescriptive passages God is saying, this is what you and I ought to do in our lives. It's important that we know the differences or else people will get us turned upside down on some of these passages. And then we're just stuck. And it's like, wow, what's the answer? Well, the answer is, is it descriptive or is it prescriptive? So next is doctrine. If you've got the sheet, uh, the sheet from last week, man, there were a bunch of verses on doctrine, so I didn't repeat those here. So you can go back and look at those. 1 Timothy is loaded with it. 2 Timothy is loaded with verses about doctrine. Man, doctrine is so important. I think I said last week, I believe as a church, we've given up the intellectual high ground. 
We've given up the intellectual high ground. We don't even mess with doctrine anymore. And I'm just speaking generally. We don't even mess with doctrine anymore. Man, doctrine is the core of what we believe. We need to learn doctrine, right? Wrong ideas about God lead to wrong ideas about life. If we're just grabbing passages here and there, and we're not gaining that full understanding about who God is, we're going to have wrong ideas about Him and about life. Right? A.W. Tozer said, what you think about God is the most important thing you can think. I don't care if you're a Christian, a Hindu, an atheist, that applies. What you think about God is the most important thing you think because it will dictate everything else that you do. If you have a high view of God, you'll have a proper view of, of man. If you have a low view of God, you'll have a high view of man. And it's all backwards. And then you'll have bad ideas about everything else. Doctrine means instruction, especially as it applies to application. Doctrine means instruction. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Right? That teaching, that's doctrine. God's word is profitable for that. It's profitable for that. 1 Timothy 4.16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those that hear you. Pay close attention to your teaching. Obviously, Paul's writing to Timothy on this. He's a young pastor. And it's important as a pastor that they handle God's Word well. If you're a teacher of a life group, it's important that you handle God's Word well. Man, if you're none of those things, it's important that you handle God's Word well. It's just not for the professionals. God calls us, all of us, to handle His Word well. So what is biblical doctrine? Right? Doctrine is that which incorporates the whole counsel of God's Word. Again, that's that idea we go back to cross-referencing. So when we talk about sin, right, we just don't grab right. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, and, and that's all we do. We talk, what does the Bible say about sin from Genesis through Revelation? And we look at everything that it says, and that's how we build a doctrine of sin or the doctrine of God or the doctrine of Christ or the doctrine of humanity is we look at what all that the passage says of all the passages, and that's how we build a doctrine. You know what? That takes work. It takes work. We need to put the work in. All right, Acts 20, verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. The whole purpose of God. Biblical doctrine always aligns with God's unchanging character. With God's unchanging character. And so again, when somebody taught God's love, 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 right? He is love. But if that's all that we look about God's character, we miss so much about God. We miss that He's holy. We miss that He's righteous. We miss that He's just. We miss that He's unchanging. We, we miss all of these things because we, 
Because the God of love would not punish somebody like that. He's also, he wouldn't be a just God then. And so it's always going to come back to God's character. If you want to know if it's true or not, does it align with God's character? If it doesn't, it's not true. Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. And then Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I think we're doing good. Oh, yeah, we're going to finish early. So why is doctrine important? It teaches us the nature and character of God. Teaches us the nature and the character of God. Uh, teaches us the way of salvation through faith. It gives instruction to the church. Teaches us God's standard of holiness for our lives. Core doctrines of the faith. All right? Augustine of Hippo said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. There are some doctrines that are called essentials. Augustine calling them essentials. I call them core doctrines. Man, they are so important that if a preacher doesn't preach these core doctrines, you can't, you can't be going to that church. It's, it's as simple as that. Right? There are some doctrines where, you know what, we just can't worship together. If we don't agree on these core doctrines, we can't even worship together because we're not even worshiping the same God. Those are the essentials. Right? Secondary doctrine? That's okay. We can, we can disagree on some of those things. You know, the end times, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, Okay. Yeah, I mean, we may fall down in different places. We may not even know what any of that is, and that's okay, too. You might be a happier person because of that. Yeah, especially today. That's right. And so secondary doctrines, that's okay. We can disagree on those. Essentials, we cannot. So what are the essential doctrines? The core doctrine is one that relates to our salvation. It relates to our salvation. God's doctrine core doctrine of salvation. These are the core doctrines and there's salvation. God's unity, His triunity, Christ's deity, Christ's humanity, human depravity, Christ's virgin birth, Christ's sinlessness, Christ's atoning death, Christ's bodily resurrection, necessity of grace, the necessity of faith. Those are all essential doctrines. And you may find some people that may take one or two away or they may add one or two to that depending on where their systematic theology takes them. But these are core doctrines. Please hear me. It's not necessary that you, one believe all of these doctrines to be saved, but they are all necessary to make salvation possible. You may be sharing the gospel with somebody, and they're like, yeah, I'm ready to be saved. Uh, tell, me, tell me about the, the Trinity. The what? I'm sorry, you can't be saved. That's not what it's saying. These are necessary for salvation to take place. These are necessary for salvation to take place. You remove one, and you remove the ability for a person to be saved. They're essential. Every last one of them together, they're essential.
To be saved, you must believe you're a sinner in need of God's grace. Christ died for your sins, and Christ rose from the dead. That's what you got to believe. Repent of your sins. Place your trust in Christ. That's what's needed. And then over time, we learn all of these other things from a new believer to a mature believer. Questions? All right. Yeah. Is this not the biggest challenge, though, as an atheist or an agnostic, the 45,000 different denominations? Yeah, it is. I mean, they, they use it. And again, a lot, most of the times, you know, my discussions with atheists, I mean, there's been a few where, I mean, they've got some honest seeking. Most of them, they're just, they're just, Oh, it's, it's not an obstacle. They're just trying to use it to put you in a bad spot. But, I mean, the different denominations, are there different denominations? Yes, because they're sin. Because they're sin. Right? Scripture doesn't give 12 different denominations. You're a follower of Christ or you're not. Now, how do we answer that again? Because you know what? We're prideful people. And it's like, I don't, I don't like how you do your church. So I'm going to go start my own church. And we can still be on those core doctrines, but pride gets in the way. Pastors have pride, just like we do. And that's where we end up with those different denominations. But yeah, they'll, they'll use that as, as a reason. But Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, once, because it, it helps you strengthen your faith. So it's like, okay, look, I, I get it. You don't understand. I don't necessarily understand, but I know God's faithful. And I know His Word is true. And it's, been, it's not just a blind faith. Right? It's a faith based on evidence. And we kind of talked a little bit about that last week, but yeah, thank you. Anything else? Ainsley? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a follower of Christ. Man, growing up, we would, if you knocked on our door, if you're a Jehovah's Witness or a Baptist or anybody else and you knocked on our door growing up, yeah, we're Catholic. We're, I mean, it just rolled off our tongue that fast. Yeah, we're Catholic. Close the door. Don't come back again. Right? I ain't been in a Catholic church in I don't know how long. And we certainly wouldn't even be good Catholics. Right? There's good Catholics and there, were, there was us. I didn't know what it meant to be Catholic. I certainly didn't know what it meant to be a Christian. We were pagan. That's what we were. And so I, I love this. I, I don't think she'll mind me saying this. Tanya Franks, she was telling me about a, uh, a mission trip that she was, our first mission trip, I think. And so they were out there, and she was sharing the gospel. And the person said, oh, yeah, I believe in God. Oh, okay, that's great. And she just walks off. And I think, I think she tells us, is somebody said, well, what God do they believe in? And it's like, oh my gosh. What does that mean? And she's probably one of the greatest evangelists that I know. She shares the gospel as well as anybody that I know. She's awesome. Just because they say they believe in God, one doesn't mean they do believe in God. And what God do they believe in? I mean, those are just clarifying questions that we want to ask. And if you'd watch those videos, you'd know that. <sighs> Right? Watch those videos. There's a yeah, there's a book in the bookstore too. Yeah, that's right. That's Ainsley plugging the bookstore. That wasn't me, okay? <laughs> so any other questions? Yeah. Would you say more about like what the role of prayer is in your 
Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. As far as pray, and again, I, trust me, Steve is, is the expert on prayer. I'm not. This this is what I know. You know what? Prayer changes me. Prayer shows my my shows my dependence on God. And so, man, when I open the scriptures, right, we can't know the truth of God's word unless He reveals it to us through His Holy Spirit. We can't. Spirit of God lives in us, right? And sometimes we just got unrepented sin, and that's going to block anything that God's got to say to us, you know. And so our prayer is we repent of our sins, search my heart and know me, see if there's any unclean ways in me. And we repent of those sins, and then we start to read God's Word. There's been many times when, man, I'm running late for work. i got to get my quiet time in real quick so I can check it off, and I just read it, and I leave. And before I'm in the truck, I don't know what I read. You know what? Man, that, that's on me. That's on me. But prayer will open it up, and it opens up that passageway for God to speak to us through His Spirit. I don't know if I just answered your question or not, but ultimately, man, prayer changes me. Prayer changes me, and I need to be changed. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah, if my people are called by my name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, I don't think it's a controversy. I just think it's, you know, we're, we're taking things out of context. Again, we've got to read it for the context. The context of the passage was it was written to Israel while they were in uh, captivity, right? And so that's a promise that was made to Israel. Now, there's principles that are there that we can apply to our lives, right? And that's now when we get back to the application of that. There's principles that we can turn around and say, if my people who are called by my name, if, they, if I'll humble myself, right, God will hear my prayer. Is that a true statement? It is. And we can take those principles that or those truths that we catch in that verse, we can interpret them. The only interpretation is it's a promise made to Israel while they were in captivity. But the application says, I still need to do those things, right? Because if we take that as a promise for us, okay, we need to humble ourselves and God's going to heal our land. He's going to heal it from all the murder and all of the rape and all of the problems that's going to happen. Man, I, I wish he would. But when we study the scriptures, we know in the last days, it's not, the land's not going to be healed. The land is not going to be healed. The days are going to grow darker. The trials are going to become stronger. And our faith will need to stand firm. But that's not a promise to us. The principles can apply to us, but it's not a promise. It's a promise to Israel. So when we take it from the context and we use that method, that's where we end up. Thoughts? Um, I, I mean, I think that 
Yeah. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. No, he, he did not. And so, and again, that's why we just can't take that passage as a promise for us because it's, it was never intended as a promise for us. And again, I think, you know, we can apply principles. We just can't apply the promise because the context, the author, the writing, the culture, the audience was not us. It was the nation of Israel. Good question. Anything else? Yeah. No, 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 no. I said, when, you know, what happens is when we read those passages, we want to be the hero of the story. And so we, we, we claim ourselves or we see ourselves as David. We're not David. We're Goliath. We're the sinners. It's God's story. He's the hero. Yeah, it wasn't. Yeah. It's just us inserting ourselves into God's story in a place where we don't belong. Again, we're the, we're the Philistines that needed to be saved. Good. All right. Anything else? Yeah. Uh. Yeah. Yeah, and again, again, that's another. Again, that's that would be one of those extra sources that you can go to, uh, where you can look up the Greek or the Hebrew. And again, the word love. I mean, there's there's three different words for love in the Greek. I mean, for us, love is I love my wife, I love Snicker bars, and I love to go fishing, and right. And so we have one word, and we use it all, even though hopefully I do. I do. I don't mean. I love my wife way more than those other things, but right. We don't have a word that really describes that. But for them, right, agape, right. That's the highest form of love that comes from God. And so it's important. I'll tell you where it's important is when Jesus is restoring Peter, right, in John. And he tells, he asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. And he asked him that three times. And I'm like, what? Something's going on here and I'm missing it. Something's going on here and I'm missing. And so as I look and I go into the Greek, Jesus says, Peter, do you phileo me? And that's another word for love. It's a Greek word for love. And it's, it's a good love. It's just not the highest form of love. And Peter says, Lord, you know I phileo you. And so Jesus asked him the next time, Peter, do you phileo me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. But the third time Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? And it says Peter was broken. He was crushed. Peter understood. Man, Christ was asking something from him he was not ready to give. And this was a moment of honesty in Peter's life. Because if, you'd have, if he'd have asked Peter, 
a year before that, Lord, I agape you like nobody agapes you. You know, I'm, man, my, I'm there. I'll die for you. But Peter denied him. And Jesus says, do you agape me? And Peter was broken. And he said, Lord, I phileo you. And Jesus restored him back to his rightful place because Jesus wasn't asking anything from Peter that Peter couldn't give. God doesn't do that. He doesn't ask from us what we can't give, but he wants from us what we should give. And Peter was honest. He says, Lord, I phileo you. That's, that's what I got. I'll take it. I'll take that. And he restores Peter. And Peter was a changed person. You know what? As Peter grew in his days, I'll bet you he went to agape. He died for Christ. For his testimony, for his witness, because he was a follower, he wouldn't recant his apostleship. He agaped him in the end. And so that's one of those benefits where we get into the Greek or the Hebrew where it gives a deeper meaning of the word. And again, you know, it's the verse where um, if you'll pray for the welfare of the city. When you look that word up, welfare, it's shalom. It's shalom. And we, and we understand shalom is peace, but it's so much more than peace. Man, that word shalom, man, we should desire flourishing with each human being in our city, and we should work for that human flourishing. It's not just peace. It's so much more than just peace. And so when we get into the Greek and the Hebrew, there is, we get those deeper meanings. There's uh, concordances where you can get that. There's a, it's called studylight.org. My wife and I use this a lot. It's free. If you want to drop $1,000, you can get logos or more. Um, we use studylight.org, and it just allows you to look up verses, and you can click on a word, and you can get the Greek from it if it's a New Testament, the Hebrew if it's the Old Testament. We use it a lot. We, it, it's very good. And I mean, unless you're just a pastor and you're preparing sermons all the time, I, I think it's probably it's enough for what you would do. Studylight.org. S-T-U-D-Y-L-I-G-H-T dot O-R-G. And, we, and again, there's, there's commentaries that are on there. There's just all kinds of, there's Bible dictionaries. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that's on there that you can use. And there's other ones. You got Bible Hub and you got Blue Letter Bible. And there's a lot of different things. That's just one that we kind of linked into and that we use a lot. Is that good? All right, thanks. Anything else? What's the description uh, of the church's uh, lack of maybe appetite for death or um, for, um, we talk about cheap grace? Mm -hmm. What's the description uh, away from cheap grace or a lack of intellectual curiosity? Hmm. Man, that's a good question. You know, that's a, that's a good question as far as, you know, what's the answer to that? Um, man. You know, I, I, you know we, need, we need people to fill the pulpit that says, this is God's word and we're going to live by it. And this is what, it, you know, we, we can't have this shallow faith. A shallow faith, a cheap grace... You know, as you mentioned, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about that in his book, um, Cost of Discipleship. And that's just, man, that's, a, that's enough grace to get me saved. I'm, I'm not sure that that exists, but anyway, it's enough grace to get me saved, not enough to really change me. 
And man, we live in a world that's just like, give me the fire insurance, right? Give me the fire insurance, and then, man, I can just go be happy. I can get all the self-care I want, whatever that looks like, whatever that sounds like. And um, again, Christianity, it, it costs. It costs Christ everything, and it's going to cost us to walk in the way and the light and the truth of what he's called us to. So one, I think, one, we need to gain that intellectual high ground back. We need to gain that intellectual high ground back. Um, and trust me, in the world that we live in today, that shouldn't be difficult. It shouldn't be difficult to gain that high ground back. I mean, again, people that sit there and think that a man can be a woman and, and just all this crazy stuff, it's like, but we have to spend the time and we have to do that. And we have to raise our kids in that and we have to help our grandchildren grow in that and we have to help our church members grow in that and our family members. We have got to move into a deeper meaning of what Christ has called us to. And again, part of it, this comes down to until somebody sees the importance of it, they're not going to do it. Look, I can stand here and tell you all day, and you could talk about it all day to people, and if they don't see the, the importance of what God's Word is and does, they're never going to delve into it. Yes, sir? Uh-huh. Yeah. If you dig deeper, the only way you dig deeper is take your most valuable asset mm -hmm. and utilize it. And that is your free time. Yeah. Yeah, where you, that's good. Where are you going to spend your time? Yeah. But, but you got to want to do it. And again, you can, you can give all the reasons why, but until you see the importance of it, it's, it's just not going to happen. You know, Christ hasn't called again. I just. And, and, and I'm always careful about this. Um, you know, I just do, I, I struggle with understanding when somebody comes to meet Jesus that their life is just not radically changed because mine was. Man, I mean, I was as pagan as they came, and it it was bad. And Christ radically saved me, and it made a difference in my life. And so when I I just don't understand, oh, yeah, yeah, I did the Jesus thing. You didn't do the Jesus thing that I did. Because you can't meet the God of all creation and not be changed. You can't. And so I struggle with that. I would never say that somebody's not a Christian. If you say I am, amen. Are you living like it? That, that's all I can say. I just know, man, when you meet Jesus Christ, he will radically change your life. And if he hasn't, you need to ask why. You need to ask why, because he has mine. Man, I can bring my wife up here, I can bring my kids up here, and they can testify to that. It was a mess. And only Jesus straightens out broken people. And so I struggle with that. Oh, yeah, camp, seventh grade, I'm good. Yeah, I hope. I hope. Questions? Any more? Man, let me close this in prayer then. Their blessed Father, Lord, we just we thank you that you are the God of all creation. You are the God who cares deeply for us. You are the God who desires to dwell with us from, from Genesis through Revelation. You will not leave us nor forsake us. 
Father, I pray for each person in this room that you would shine your face upon them, Lord, that you would be their hedge of protection about them. Lord, you would speak your truth to them and through them, O oh Lord, uh, to their coworkers, to their families, to their children, to their grandchildren. Uh, Father, we, we're desperate for you. And some of us even know it. Some of us even recognize it. But Lord, we pray that you would just be real to us, to our church, to our city, that, Lord, you would bring the change and transformation that only the name of Jesus Christ can through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I just pray, again, as we go, we would be your hands and feet, Lord, that we would desire to live a holy life as you call us to be. Lord, that we would share your truth and love and kindness and mercy and grace. Lord, send your blessings upon each of us, Lord, that we would be faithful to you as you are unto us. And it's in your glorious name, Lord Jesus, that we ask these things. Amen. There's two um, videos in there. Again, just like the last ones, encourage you to watch them. Highly beneficial. And then if you just wanted to do some of that cross-reference, Matthew 7, 1 is another uh, verse that's often misinterpreted. Uh, do not judge. So anyway, see you next week.